Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's biggest talk health radio. My name is Steve Roos and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, founders and clinicians who are leading the healthcare revolution in the UK and beyond. I am the CEO and founder of PocDoc, a health tech business that is enabling smartphone-based blood testing and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. As always, um, thanks and welcome to everyone listening live on UK Health Radio. Uh, And also thanks and welcome to anyone listening on demand via Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Amazon or YouTube. Um, You just search for Health Tech Hour and look for my smiling face. Please also follow us on the socials, which is at Health Tech Hour. And also please follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio to stay on top of all of the great content that is coming up. So on today's show, we have Liz Gazda, CEO of Ember Labs, straight out of Boston in the United States. Ember, which is E-M-B-R, is a spin out of MIT. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm sure lots of you do, but MIT is one of, if not the most prestigious STEM, so science, technology, engineering and math institutions in the world. Um, the company began life focusing on helping menopausal women reduce the impact of hot flashes through their device. Um, worn on the wrist, which is called the Wave. So Ember, so E-M-B-R, have gone on, have gone to great lengths um, to actually prove the clinical validity of their technology. Um, with the results of a study with Johnson and Johnson serving 168% improvement in hot flash control, and another study with the University of Berkeley showing that um, just by using the Wave for three minutes, the Wave, uh, the wearer felt um, up to five degrees cooler. So since then. Amber have expanded to address thermal imbalance, what they refer to as thermal imbalance, either hot or cold in men and women. Um, and their technology and approach is super cool. Um, excuse the pun. So let's get into it. Liz, um, great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm fine, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you're calling from Boston today? Yes, from Boston. We have some nice sunny, warm spring weather here. Okay, so- good, good. Yeah, look, it's we're, we're kind of, We've had quite a few people from the US on recently, which is great. Like we are a global show, so it's good to kind of expand beyond the shores of our own little island, which is excellent. Um, so the show itself is generally in three parts. The first part is really kind of an origins part, which is how you and the company came to be doing all of the amazing things that you're, you're doing. Um, the middle part is all of the amazing things that you are doing. And then the final piece is partly around motivational lessons for anyone listening, whether they're in health tech or not in health tech, starting their own company or thinking about it or just generally life, as well as what's the future hold for Ember. And I know you've got a lot of exciting plans. Um, so let's let's start because when we had our pre-show call, so most regular listeners will know that we always try and do a, what we always do, a pre-show call with a guest just to try and understand as much as we can about the business because we just believe it makes for a better show. Um, so that the story of how Ember 
came to be, I, I actually thought was fantastic. So why don't we sort of start with that and then we can kind of take it from there? Because I thought it was a really great story. Yes, absolutely. Well, the, the, the story starts at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when the three male founders were conducting normal research as part of their PhD programs and found themselves in a laboratory working on this research in the middle of July. Uh, it was probably 95 degrees outside or, you know, I guess that's around 32 degrees uh, Celsius. And like most of us have experienced, an over-air-conditioned lab, and it was so cold that they actually had down jackets and hoodies on. Okay. And they, you know, they said, this is crazy. You know, it's, it's 95 degrees outside. We're in this laboratory. We're freezing. Why are we still using a thermostat on the wall to actuate temperature? What right. if we could think about a biohack and uh, actuate uh, our perception of temperature from the body? So um, they started to work on this problem about the time that there was a hackathon being run uh, at MIT. And I think we're all familiar about what a, ha a hackathon is. It's a defined uh, period of time in which you're asked to solve a solution. And this was a wearables competition. And they thought, okay, here's our chance. Let's go to work on this. And they discovered through their research and development that if you apply temperature waveforms to specific areas of the body that are highly sensitive, it will actually send a uh, neural message to the brain, the part of the brain where temperature is processed, and it can actually change your perception of temperature. And so that's the origin story. I think that's amazing. So, and, and at the time, were they working on their own research that was related to this field or was their actual field completely different? And it was just because literally they were sat in a lab freezing cold when outside it was boiling hot they were working on other research they right. were working on um, a standard research for their phds they were all three of them material scientists if you know anything about material science it's kind of looking at how what all things are made of and how they interact together and this was a mm -hmm. perfect blend to uh, create this breakthrough device because it does demand an understanding of cutting edge materials and technology. And what, um, and what was in this space before? Was there anything that they kind of looked at and thought, oh, it's a bit like this, a bit like that, or is it really going straight back to basics around the physics of waveforms and what waveforms can do and trying to put it together with the, you know, how the body, um, how the body assesses or, or actuates itself for temperature? I don't know what they looked at, honestly, that was, on the market. I think that they were laser focused on this compressed amount of time in which they had to build, you know, a wearable device. Right. Um, what I do know is they did understand the um, kind of the physics of, of cooling and the physics of cooling are such that um, cooling demands a lot of temperature, uh, excuse me, a lot of power. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the things that cool in your life, you know, your refrigerator or an air conditioner, they're large, they're noisy, it demands the use of air and water. And so yep. they knew that they wanted to do something different with a solid state technology. Mm -hmm. So one that is absolutely silent. Right. Yeah, because you can't really walk around with a giant refrigerator on your wrist. No, you can't. No, that's not really going to, that's kind of that's not, not really going to work. Right. Right. That's right. not very wearable. <laughs> but that was, <laughs> that was the um, biggest technological challenge was how do you make something so cold and so small and wearable? 
Yeah, I mean, and we, we'll get into the technology as we go through. But at, um, after the hackathon, what what happened? Because you know, I, for the, those people who aren't particularly familiar with hackathons, it's sort of it came out of like the developer space where you would get a group of developers together. Could be in a company. It could be just a massive event, and they would kind of sit in a room and they have 24 hours or sometimes less to just work on a particular issue or particular area. And, you know, it's all quite sort of um, bootstrappy and, you know, really early stage, loads of energy. And, you know, sometimes they come up with amazing things. Sometimes it it doesn't, but it's sort of a, you know, it's a big movement, I guess. It's been particularly over the last sort of 10, 15 years. So after this hackathon, what, what, because again, it could have died after that. Like it could have been just one of those millions of or thousands of things that come out of hackathons and then just don't go anywhere so then what what happened yes so uh, one thing that MIT is very good at is publicity and so (laughs) the media office uh, put something out on the wire about this competition and I think the competition was had a big corporate sponsor so that was newsworthy in itself Um, the the story got put out on the wire and it got picked up by the weather channel and wired magazine Oh, nice. And so those uh, journalists put something up on the web. And the next thing you know, um, the three founders started to receive thousands of emails from people all over the world saying, when can I buy this device? Temperature is the biggest problem in my life. Wow. And they opened up every single one of those emails. And it was everything from women going through menopause to sufferers of MS Mm -hmm. to people going through... um, various forms of cancer treatment to people who run like myself, chronically cold in any environment. Um, And they, they opened those uh, emails and they said, wow, there's really something here. We need to dive into this. Mm -hmm. And so they went, they decided let's go to work and let's see if we can't produce something that we can put on the market. Okay. And they just went back to the lab or like they went back to the lab. And if you look at the first prototypes that were developed, you know, they were real clunkers. Right. They were w- wired. Um, you couldn't wear it. But over the course of three years, which speaks right. to really how difficult this is, they wow. were able to come up with what was the minimum viable product that they felt that they could put on a Kickstarter. Okay. Cool. So the first generation product that um, we put on the market um, was launched on a Kickstarter with the goal of doing $100,000 worth of revenue. And the founders said, wow, we could pay off our student loans and get on with life and finish our our postdocs. But they were stunned uh, when they launched the product on Kickstarter to find that they did the $100,000 in the first 45 minutes. (laughs) Yes, I love it. So uh, eventually managed to do uh, three quarters of a million dollars over the nice. course of the Kickstarter campaign. And that's when they said, okay, this is serious. We've really got to devote our lives to. Uh, and we've, re- we've really got to build, we've really got to build a lot of product. <laughs> we've really got to build a lot of product. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, that wow. A lot better than we expected. Okay. Good. Good times. All right. Cool. Okay. That's a great, I, I, just, I love these type of stories. Um, okay. And so, how did you and why did you become involved? So I know that your background is, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurialism in there. You know, you've mm-hmm. got a lot of stuff around engineering in there. But how did you come to be involved um, in, the, in, the, in the operation? Yeah, I was uh, wrapping up a startup I was working on. And I got a call from a recruiter who said, you know, there are three young men who developed this incredible technology. They're looking for <clears throat> a CEO. 
to come in and they'd like to interview you. And I thought, this is crazy. How often do three young tech bros, we call them here in the US, uh, <laughs> decide that they want to interview a female CEO? Uh, this is interesting. And it actually, uh, you know, it was a little bit scary because uh, as you know, uh, the common saying is hardware is hard. Yeah. And I, I was aware of that. And so I knew that this was going to be much different than SaaS software I had worked on or mobile based technologies, that it was going to yeah. be really hard. Yeah. And then when I met the three uh, young founders, I was so impressed with who they are and what they had done. It was just a no brainer for me to join them. Okay. And what, and like, what was, what, what, how did they explain the business to you at that point versus like what it is now? Like what did that, you know, because was it more like, this is my experience, but you know, they're, 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 they're particularly like technical founders. They can be very, very interested in the technology and not necessarily so worried about like who's going to actually sort of buy it. Um, but that might be different because of the way that they came up, which was, you know, through that Kickstarter, which demonstrated very clearly who would buy it because quite a lot of people kind of bought it. So I don't know. I don't know how they sort of how they were with you in those initial meetings. In the initial conversations, the story was that they had developed a really cool gadget that heats and cools. Okay. And um, then when I started to unpack that, um, they revealed that they had actually tried this device on many of their mothers and mother's friends that had menopause and they found it to be incredible. Okay. But when we, this isn't, you have to remember, this is 2018. So when we looked at each other around the table, we said, look, if we call this a menopausal product, we're going to have two problems. One, nobody else is going to buy it because menopause is not cool. Right. Yeah. Number what? Yeah. It puts you in, <laughs> puts you, it puts you in a box, puts you in a box, but also, yeah. you know, it's, it's not sexy, right? Mm. It's, it's very stigmatized. Yeah. It's associated with aging. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about who our potential partners would be, it would, it would maybe limit what we can to do, as you say. Yeah. Um, but the the other thing is that we we didn't have research to back any kind of claim, and right. that made me nervous. And what's the um? What just for everyone listening? What are the? What's the general rule of thumb in the U.S. around you know? Because it's not necessarily a medical device, but it does have a sort of a medical application, kind of. So where what what what, what are the rules around that? It falls in. <clears throat> excuse me. It falls into the wellness category. Okay. But, you know, you, if, you're, if you're going to say something like it relieves the symptoms of hot flashes or menopause, you better have something to back it up. Right, right. And that's yeah. especially when you start to do television and radio advertising. Right. So it's more of a, an FCC thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's sort yeah. of similar in the UK, I would imagine, yeah. and in Europe. You just, mm -hmm. if you're going to make a claim, you have to be able to sort of provide some evidence for that claim. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the same time, what was happening in the industry is there was a wellness explosion. You know, that was about yeah. the moment that uh, somebody had quantified the wellness market at being worth $4.2 trillion. Right. Um, actually, you, the, the following year, 2019, you started to hear the word digital therapeutics thrown around. Yep. And in 2020, you actually heard about the emergence of femtech. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly the winds were blowing in our direction and yeah. we, we identified that we were, we were not a cool gadget out of MIT. We were actually a wellness device. Mm -hmm. And we were also seeing just a wave of customer feedback coming in from the wave one device 
telling us that it helped with nausea, that it helped with motion sickness, that it helped with um, it helped with social anxiety. And we right. said, okay, there's something really going on here. We need to really prove out the mechanism of action. We need to find a partner that will help us validate this for menopause. And the reason we looked at menopause is because first and foremost, it was the feedback we were getting from women saying, this is a life changer. Mm -hmm. And then we also started to see that the femtech space began to talk about menopause. And when we looked at menopause vis-a-vis -vis even the other categories of women's health, it is just a massive opportunity. Yeah. There are 1.1 1, 1 .1 billion women that will be in menopause by 2025. Okay, that's quite a large market. <laughs> I would, I mean, basically, I would, I would think. Yeah, I but mean, Steve, you, yeah. you'd, you'd be amazed. Investors sometimes say to me, well, the market's too big. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I mean, yeah, that's one of those ones where it's like, you're, <laughs> I love it when you feed your investors that if anything, your business is too good. You're like, oh, great. Well, then, I mean, so. Here's the checkbook. Well, yeah, I'm like, what? cool. Okay, we done here then? Yeah. Yeah, so the market's too big. So therefore, you know, it's not anything that you can sort of, it's just too big to get hold of. Is that what they're yeah. saying? Yeah, you're boiling the ocean. When in fact, I think they've just never seen a market so big. Well, and also it's limited. It's, it's, it's um, you know, we can get into that. And I know we got into it on the pre-show call specifically around menopause. It's sort of like, it, the well, again, I'm not necessarily the, the, the great, the best arbiter of this, you know, being a man, but there doesn't seem to be necessarily have, have been, that there seems to be an increase dramatic increase in companies, businesses, discussion, conversation, engagement, and openness around that topic to provide services and treatments and so on for women, mm -hmm. which maybe wasn't happening before. And maybe it's being driven because there are more digital solutions now, which is more comfortable and easier, or I don't know what it might be, or technology's just got a lot better, or the world's changed. I, I don't know what it is. But whereas I think before, I, I just wonder whether investors have a, a little bit to catch up with, you know? I think that's exactly the situation. They're catching up. Right. Okay. And so um, when you, um, so the, the, between those two kind of bits where you have some initial customers and you're getting all of this amazing feedback um, across the board, we're like, it helped me with this, it helped me with that, which is all fantastic. Mm -hmm. How how were those customers finding you at that point? Were they, because was it very like, was it very almost like, because again, the, the, you know, at that point, you were still a very, very young company, you know, and so how were they actually finding you and using it and things like that? It was primarily through digital advertising, you know, using, okay. we were using Facebook primarily as a way to uh, capture customers. And that, that was very effective for a while, because that's where you find primetime women uh, okay. on, on Facebook. That has changed, you know, okay. we've, we're looking at, at different channels and, and, um, and also, uh, now the millennials are aging into menopause and that changes the game. Yeah, I can imagine. So um, we're going to come back. We have to stop for a quick break for a couple of minutes, but then we're going to come back and I want to dig into exactly how it works and dig into all of the clinical data that you have. Because I think that that is super interesting because I think that does, for me, obviously we're, we're a medical device manufacturer, a, a yes. healthcare yeah. company. So clinical validation isn't just something we want to do on top. We literally have to do it in order to get to market. But wellness products and other digital health businesses, they don't have to do it. And there seems to be a difference between those that choose to go above and beyond and those that don't. So I know exactly. that you have to get into that as well. So sure. we'll be right back um, in two minutes with Liz Gazda, CEO of um, Ember Labs.
the station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchship.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% using the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchship.co.uk because nothing's better. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to today's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Bruce, and Liz Gazda, the CEO of Ember Labs. So, um, Liz, what would be great now is um, I'd like to go through or have you take us through how the technology for the wave works and exactly why it works, I think is really interesting. Like, Mm-hmm. Why, how, how does something on your wrist or how can something on your wrist control or, or not control influence so dramatically someone's perception of their temperature? And then how does that then play out through those specific use cases, whether it be menopause, whether it be cancer symptoms, um, cancer treatment symptoms or, mm-hmm. or all of those different applications? Yeah, let's start with maybe some basics around temperature, which is that, um, believe it or not, if you're outside on a very cold day, and you feel cold, um, nothing is changing to your core body temperature. You know, if I take your temperature, nothing has changed. Um, It's really an integration of uh, many parts of your body telling you, uh, giving you a sense of cold perception. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing to remember in this discussion. So what we do is we apply to the inside of the wrist a thermal intervention. So you actually feel the device heat up or cool down, depending on what you need in the moment. The, those, and we deliver the temperature in a, a waveform. So it's an onset and an offset of temperature. Okay. Those uh, temperature waveforms stimulate the temperature sensitive nerve endings in your skin called thermoreceptors. And thermoreceptors are unique in that they continue to fire on temperature change. So if you apply a static temperature to the inside of the wrist and those thermoreceptors, they stop firing. So we keep keep those thermoreceptors firing and temperature, Steve, is a unique pathway to the brain. So it is a unique neural pathway. It's distinct from touch or or other neural pathways and it's much faster because it's older. And Um, temperature is processed in different regions of the brain and those regions of the brain also do other things. So uh, let's take menopause as a, as a case study for a moment. So when we use cooling as an intervention, we stimulate the thermoreceptors with cooling. It travels to the part of the brain that is responsible for balancing the autonomic nervous system. And that's just a fancy word for your fight or flight response and your rest and digest response. Mm -hmm. We know that most of the symptoms of menopause, like hot flashes, uh, anxiety or stress and insomnia are caused by an overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. So it's really temperature as the vehicle to dampen down that fight or flight response. Okay. So it's not necessarily... A temperature response it's almost like an adrenaline type response that, that yes. you perceive as a temperature change that's right that's right. exactly right so for most men on the call or on the 
program who will never feel a hot flash. Just imagine the last time that you were spooked or in a near miss accident on, on, in your car. You remember that heat sensation come up through your body. That's exactly what a menopausal hot flash feels like. Right. And so, so yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, so the actual, so the, cause it's, it's a form of electrical wave, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So it's, an, it's an electrical signal that moves through a solid, solid piece of material that the, that's the, right. the, 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 the MIT guys put together that then, um, but the, here's the question I have when it's in cooling mode or heating mode, is it that does that piece of material get hot or cold or is it actually the electricity that's just passing it through or is it a bit of both? No, it, it really gets hot and cold. Okay. So, and you, okay. and you feel it instantly. Cool. Okay. Um, okay. I think that's, yeah. And why, so that's, why, sorry, go on. So that's on the menopausal side. Now, when we think about um, temperature perception and why, if you put it on Steve and, and you're just trying to get comfortable at a bus stop yeah. um, in a, on a cold day, the, um, so the, the region of, there is a distinct region of the brain that controls your perception of temperature and we're able to essentially hack that. Yeah, because what this isn't, and we talked about this on the pre-show call because I got this all wrong just because I didn't quite get it to begin with. What this doesn't do is it doesn't change your core temperature, right? So yeah. it's not like putting a coat on or having a hot bath. Yeah. It's not. It's not about changing your or, or sitting in a, for example, sitting in a massively air-conditioned room to bring your own temperature down, because that's that's more of a whole systemic, whole body approach. But what this is actually doing is really um, there, there's a connection between the thermoreceptors in your wrist and the temperature perception in your brain, and it's hacking into that. Exactly, right. and even if you're in a a very cold room, your core, core body temperature is not changing. Oh, core, is that right? Is that, yeah, is that still, is that still perception-based? It's still perception-based. Core body right. temperature is really an indicator of whether you're well or unwell. Okay. If, if we were to actuate your core body temperature, you would not feel well. You would feel okay. like you're, you're ill. Um, we also discovered that temperature also is processed in the same region of the brain that processes human social emotion. How'd you find that out? Well, we found out by working <laughs> with, cool. there's, a, there's a, a, a leading Dutch researcher, uh, um, Hans Eisterman, okay. who has done research on this. And this is why we know that people who are socially isolated feel social isolation as being cold. Wow. And that we even have language in, at least in the English language, to describe things like you know, he gave me a cold shoulder, cold shoulder. or she, she gave me a warm smile. Wow. And so we, we, we were not surprised when people wrote to us and said, this is really helping with my social anxiety. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. And that's, do you know what's interesting about that? Like being in the, being in the kind of scientific development space ourselves, mm -hmm. that's, that's an example of a product that didn't necessarily know that that was what the impact would be. Right. And so you couldn't necessarily set up a study to test that in, in, in advance, right? You wouldn't necessarily have ever gotten to that point, but by having the product out there and people use it, you have all of these unexpected upsides. That's right. It, and actually when we, we first found out that users were saying, I don't feel socially anxious anymore. We went into the scientific literature. We actually found that work has been done on this where they had people hold a warm cup of coffee when interacting with other people and they actually felt more socially connected to them. Amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic.
It's been um, a lot of discovery. Yeah, that's cool. That's so cool. Um, so with and uh, just so I know again we talked about this before, but why does temperature control temperature perception perception of temperature? Why is that so important beyond just the kind of initial? Oh yeah, I feel a bit cooler now. Oh, okay, I feel more comfortable. Like, why does it matter? To, to women, whether they're menopausal or men that are having symptoms from prostate cancer treatment or like, what's the big deal? The big deal is that if you are feeling uncomfortable from a, a temperature uh, perspective, it can really stress you out. So it can drive anxiety. It can also drive performance. So there was a study done a couple of years ago that looked at the classic problem in the office environment where the thermostat is set primarily for men in suits. And then you have women sitting there in their dresses, um, freezing. freezing. And you look, you know, in many offices, you see space heaters, you see women with blankets on their lap. Um, somebody took a look at this and determined that the fact that women are suffering from being chronically cold in offices affects their cognitive performance by up to 30%. That's insane. So that's just one example of, of, of how temperature plays an important role in our lives. And I, I know, know that I know. We, we spoke about um, the other ones regarding sort of the corporate space and, and, and when menopause hits women and that type of thing. So what, what, yeah, it'd be great if you could talk through that bit, because I thought that that was a okay. really another great example. Yeah. I mean, women who are starting to go through menopause are in top leadership positions or running their household. They have tremendous responsibility. They're at the top of their pay grade. Corporations have invested in them. Um, and they are deciding to leave the workforce because they just can't handle it. Uh, they're in a vicious cycle of not sleeping at night, waking up, having a cortisol rush from not sleeping, having anxiety. The anxiety brings on hot flashes and the hot flashes mean that they can't sleep again. So um, women are leaving and that has what? the and sorry, I was going to say, what, what's the general kind of average duration of, 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 of symptoms that one would call related to the menopause? Well, if you include perimenopause, it's probably 20 years, but menopause. Kind oh, of, wow. Yeah, because women will start to experience it some, you know, five to 10 years prior, depending on your, your unique biology. But um, it's the average is about a decade. Wow. That's I mean, that's that's significant. It's I significant. That long. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah. And so, and, and presumably the hot, well, I mean, anecdotally one understands or, or sort of society sometimes it's cliche, but talk about the hot flashes and things like that as a symptom mm -hmm. of menopause, but that is one of the leading issues. Yeah. There's many, had, yeah, there's so many more, but it's primarily hot flashes and it's just, you know, imagine going into that fight or flight response that I described earlier in the show, 10, yeah, 20 times a day with no relief. And also, yeah. like, exactly, there's no relief because there's no specific cause in the sense of when you normally when you have a fight or flight, there's an incident, the incident passes, you get back down to the baseline and, you know, right. on, on you on you go. Um, and you yeah. can't anticipate it. So you could be no. ready to stand up and give a presentation and just, you know, go into the state of complete discomfort. That just sounds, yeah, really. I mean, it's, it, yeah, thank goodness that you guys are doing what you're doing. Um, and I'm guessing that what, by the sounds of it, that's the feedback that people are giving you, really, which is that, oh, my goodness, because pre previously around temp hot flashes, what was what was 
what is the incumbent or, or the kind of accepted course of action for hot flashes? Well, there are me- medicinal um, solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is hormone replacement therapy, but that's just not an option for, for some people or yeah, it's in got some major, cases. It's got major, major issues associated with it as well. That's right. Or um, just uh, in the United States, some women are put on antidepressants. That, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's a heavy, that's a heavy prescription, isn't it? It you is. That, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big step. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's just kind of, you know, throwing a cold towel around, around your neck, which is something you can do maybe when you're at home, but certainly you not when you, you can't do that in the boardroom. Can't do that in a boardroom. No. I mean, I guess you could, but you know, like, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you probably could, but probably yeah. should, but I don't probably shouldn't. Um, yeah. Um, so, and, and why were you from the beginning? Cause again, you didn't necessarily have a health tech background or healthcare background. Is that fair prior to this? Um, yeah, that's right. A little bit yeah. at Phillips, but, um, yeah. And so where, where did this, where did this drive, you know, to go above and beyond to prove the clinical validity come from and why? Yeah, I, it, it was really that, um, we wanted to prove that this goes beyond the placebo effect. We had done so okay. much research. We knew that the brain science was proving this out, but the science is so new. And, and even if you look at what happened last year with the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, it was awarded to the, these scientists who unlocked the power of these thermoreceptors. Was it? That, yes. Wait, the three guys behind Ember? No, no, no. The, the, okay. the, the Nobel Prize winners for Physiology and Medicine in 2021 yeah were awarded for looking at the power of those thermoreceptors. They were looking wow. at, they were looking at the pain connection. Oh, right? okay. Okay. But, you know, look, the, me- the med- medical community is saying, Hey, this is new science. We need to take a look at. Right. So that's okay. how new this stuff is. That, that is, that's, that's amazing. That is very new. And so was it because you, so the placebo effect, I think is really interesting because I do think that was quite insightful um, of, of you guys to, to try and, de-dupe or, 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 or sort of prove out that that wasn't the case because that is real right someone buys something that yes. they think will help with the thing and then they you know confirmation bias it confirms it helps with that thing mm-hmm. and by the way there's no there's nothing wrong with using no. the placebo effect i mean that's right. our our body's own mechanism right? yeah but uh it was really important that uh we felt that there was something here so we partner with johnson and johnson innovation we ran a study and we were able to prove out just, you know, a significant improvement in hot flash control, you know, reduction in um, uh, hot flash daily interference, and even an improvement in the insomnia severity index. Um, and what we did, Steve, is we took the same measures that are used by a pharmaceutical company to look at these things. So we okay. held ourselves to an incredibly high clinical standard as a consumer company. Right, um, which you didn't we, need to do, but I think speaks volumes for the confidence that you have in the technology and for the willingness to be um, graded in the same way as yes. healthcare companies. Yes, exactly. And we, we wanted our customers to feel confident that we were the type of company that would conduct ourselves in this way and, and take um, our claims very seriously. We since repeated that study uh, in the UK, actually. So we were calling it hot flushes. Yes, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. You just swap the vowel out for us. Exactly. We swapped yeah. the vowel for you. 
Um, And the results were really compelling. We used the same form factor, the same hardware, which was the first generation device, um, but we had added new waveforms that were developed uh, um, precisely for these conditions. So a hot flash waveform and an all night mode, and we saw a dramatic improvement in those same measures. Um, So again, using scientific rigor to use the same measures, the same protocols, the same inclusion and exclusion criteria in the study, and yet releasing those new waveforms um, dramatically improved the results. And um, we might not be able to get it in just before the commercial break, but we can try because I'm really interested because at, at some point, well, it might have been quite early on, but at some point you realized that there was there was more there were more applications of this technology beyond menopausal women with hot flashes, yes. not just with other women with other conditions, but also with men with certain yes. conditions. So how, how did that come about? Was that serendipitous? Or was it based on user feedback or was it sort of more strategic and focused? No, we, we started to hear from men being treated for prostate cancer who are put on androgen suppressing therapies who have very impactful hot flashes because it's instantaneous, um, that they were using the device and they described it as life-changing. And that's when we- So so these guys had just found, these men had just found you, bought one because someone had said, oh, they thought it would work. And it turns out it worked phenomenally well. Yeah, it was remarkable. And that's when we said, we've got to look at this. So we contacted the Prostate Cancer Foundation. We were put into- touch with a leading uh, oncologist and uh, an amazing medical doctor who's responsible for um, all of survivorship, cancer survivorship at Dana-Farber Institute okay. here in Boston. We ran the study uh, during the pandemic with the Gen 1 device, and we showed just a remarkable uh, decrease in hot flashes in men. And uh, it was really uh, an emotional experience for us to hear the testimonials of these men you know, really yeah. met- metastatic cancers that said, this has absolutely improved the quality of my life. I can now exercise. Wow. I've, been a- I've been able to go off of medications. I feel like wow. I'm living, living again. Wow. Yeah. That's really powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah. And um, were you expecting it to be that sort of impactful or, or was that surprising? We, we couldn't have anticipated how impactful and it was really telling when, one of the participants said, I no longer have to go get a Depo-Provera shot, right? What's so a, I, what's, what's Depo-Provera? So that's uh, when, when you are having these hot flashes, often physicians will put you on, a, I think it's an estrogen shot and you have to, you okay. have to physically go into a clinic, you know, every few weeks, oh, get wow. this shot. And one of our participants said, I've, I've completely weaned myself off that medication. Wow. That's, so that has uh, huge impact yeah. for these men. Huge impact, especially because I imagine that there's stigma around, well, there's stigma around cancer anyway, there's stigma around male cancer, but there's, there's also, I would imagine, stigma around that type of symptom for men with that type of cancer, which, which this seems to be addressing. Yeah, and this is the number one cancer in men. One out of eight men will get prostate cancer. And the biggest problem is keeping them on these medications that help them survive. And so if we can help drive the drug adherence, that's a very powerful uh, impact on uh, cancer patients. And was this part of the strategy that you mentioned before around trying to, before you make a claim, trying to demonstrate that? Oh, absolutely. Beyond that, that it was, it yeah. was bad. Absolutely, because now we're talking about cancer, 
right? We're talking about very ill people. And so it's very important to us. That's why we have a chief medical officer that runs all of our clinical studies. You know, she's an NIH scholar. um, And we have uh, many scientists that back her up in, in these investigations. Great. I think that's that's incredibly important. Um, and, and, you know, congrats to you guys for sort of taking those extra steps. We're going to stop now for our final commercial break and then we'll come back and we're going to talk about what's next for Ember. Um, so I know you've got lots of plans and then, um, you know, we'll get into some more of the motivational things around what keeps you going and what keeps you staying on your mission and, and, and the team at Ember. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchsip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% using the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchsip.co.uk because nothing's better. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the final part of today's show, Health Tech Hour, with me, Steve Roost, and our guest, Liz Gazda, CEO of Ember Labs. So we've just been spending the last 40 minutes or so going into all of the great technology at Ember and, and the incredible stories around um, helping women with who are suffering from hot flushes with menopause, also helping men who are suffering with symptoms from prostate cancer treatment. Um, and, and I think what I'd like to get into now in the final part of the show is, you know, what's next for, for Ember? Because you're still a really young company, you know, and you, you're really just at the beginning of, of the journey. And so t- t- tell us what, what, what are the plans? Yeah, well, we're really interested in bringing this technology far and wide. So we would really like to be able to expand globally and offer this product to women everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's first and foremost, but also um, we're working on some really interesting research to be able to predict a hot flash before it starts and stop it in its tracks. Oh, cool. Yes. So uh, we're well underway there. And so we hope to release a feature like that in the coming year. Okay. Um, and then Steve, we continue to look at what our users are telling us that they're using the product for. So for mm-hmm. example, I talked about social anxiety. I've talked about sleep. And um, right now we're also looking at symptoms of MS. Okay. So uh, folks that um, are diagnosed with MS um, have a real problem with temperature regulation. Okay. And so uh, we are working now to uh, find, identify uh, uh, researchers that want to help us validate the technology for, for patients with MS. And so there are other areas that we will be examining um, and trying to validate from a clinical perspective. Okay. And, um, and so was that MS, was that again, one of those ones where people had already started using it for MS and then you thought, oh, okay, maybe we'll look at this. Was that, was that another, another way that that happened? Exactly. So, you know, we, we started to receive uh, emails from people suffering from MS saying that this was uh, again, a life changer. And then we started working with MS influencers 
and we saw an uptake of the product for people with MS. Um, just like we also started to hear from people who said, um, I've always been someone that was motion sick in the back of an Uber, and now I no longer have motion sickness. So wow. what we, there's been a pattern of taking this real, what we call real world evidence in the medical field, right? Yeah. Um, taking it in, then checking the scientific literature to see if there's any pre-existing uh, examination yeah. of this, and then running a clinical study. So we have right now a number of clinical studies going on. We're looking at uh, breast cancer patients. So okay. taking the learnings from the prostate cancer, because women yeah with breast cancer are also put on estrogen suppressing therapies that cause right. uh, incredible hot flashes because they're thrown into a state of menopause overnight. Uh, okay. Naturally, a woman has years to wean off uh, estrogen. Okay. But if you have a gynecological cancer or if you have uh, breast cancer, you're put on a drug that throws you instantly into menopause. So it's much more severe. Um, Another serendipitous discovery was we uh, discovered that people who have been affected with COVID. Okay. You've heard, you've heard this I've, term. I've heard of COVID. Yeah. It's a big, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, some people with COVID um, become, you've heard the term COVID long haulers. Yeah. We call it long COVID over here. But okay. Same. Long, long COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Many of those people develop a form of dysautonomia. Okay, what's that? Dysautonomia is your autonomic nervous system thrown out of whack, and you have trouble processing temperature as one of those uh, wow. issues. So, you know, we opened the Wall Street Journal one morning. This was, <laughs> and we saw that Mount Sinai Hospital uh, was talking about this dysautonomia. They were running a, a study on COVID long haulers. And again, we went back into our customer service database. And we remembered that many people with dysautonomia and POTS um, had written to us and said that this device was helping them. So we called Mount Sinai. We jumped into that study. Cool. Um, and now we're running a follow-up study at Stanford um, oh, nice. looking, looking at these COVID long haulers. So it's been really brilliant to see how a consumer product has picked up and detected uh, this opportunity. And now you can yeah. see so I think I think you guys are very um, well, I mean, it's not necessarily luck. It is what it is. But you have a product which doesn't that um, that can be out there in the real world being used by real people to 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 address symptoms of a medical condition, which allows you to gather that real world data to then use to then go off and get the clinical data um, to then validate it, which I think is a super great pathway, if, you know, like hats off to you guys that you can do that. Cause obviously, you know, if you cross the line into being a medical device, then you have to completely invert it. Right. Which is, you yes. can't get anything, you can't get anything on the market until you've done all of the validation work. So That's actually, right. I, I, but, but I do, I, I love, I love the simplicity of it in the sense mm -hmm. of it's it, it, in terms of how you explain it to somebody, it's a very simple device. It's extremely complicated and complex as to how it actually works, but it's a very simple, uh, simple, um, you know, simple solution to a number of, really complicated and heretofore very difficult problems to actually solve which mm -hmm. i love i think that's great yeah um so let's talk a little bit about obviously you know the the journey and you know throughout your career and not just in in this but like what do you use or what kind of lessons or behaviors do you use 
that kind of help you stay on the mission and help everyone at Ember stay on the mission? Because, uh, you know, healthcare can be a bit of a bumpy ride, but, you know, I know you've worked and started lots of other businesses. So I'm sure you've, you know, had some, had some bruises and knocks along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost is to really be sure that you're completely enrolled in the mission. Mm-hmm. And so when you're running a company like this, uh, you have to believe and um, sometimes you find people come into the business and you can just tell that they're not fully enrolled. Yeah. Um, and so at, at our stage, 25 people, um, you need people who believe in what we're doing for the greater good, which is helping people through the power, the therapeutic power of temperature. Yeah. So that's first and foremost. Uh, secondly, um, Steve, as you know, we're in a rapidly moving space. It's mm-hmm. changing all the time. And yeah. so it's really important that you keep having conversations on the outside. So you can't yeah. stay too focused on the inside. Uh, the smartest companies that I know bring what I call tacit knowledge into the organization. Mm-hmm. And the only way to gather tacit knowledge is through going outside, having conversations, looking around. What we have found is that by being aware of what's happening in, in the greater economy or the ecosystem, uh, we're able to take advantage of it. Yeah. If, if you're just, you know, heads down inside a company, uh, you can be really blind to opportunity. Yeah. Um, no, I would agree. And I think that that's, that's where, that's one of the things that gets thrown at technical founders quite a lot, I think, is that they're just very extremely focused on their own technology. Um, you know, rightly or wrongly, it might not always be the case, but, you know, people like to generalize. Um, you know, so, so yeah, that's certainly my work. I, I mentor a number of technical businesses more from a sales and commercial perspective. And that's one of the things that we work on, which is, um, you know, really trying to understand, yes, you understand how your technology works, but actually what is the impact? Why would anyone care about it? How, how can this be used? Who is going to use it? How are they going to use it? Will they pay you for it? That type of thing that really can only be gained by looking outside. You know, there's like histories littered with people that started companies and they sort of said, well, my company failed because people didn't understand how great my technology was. I'm like, well, is that really the reason? Right, exactly. And that's why, um, for example, I talked about how we ran our studies with, you know, pharmaceutical grade endpoints. We had gone out and talked to, to pharmaceutical companies and, they told us, if you're going to run studies, you better hit a high standard. And so we said, right. okay, we're going to do that. Right. Uh, if, if we had not had those conversations, we wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I think it's similar with PropDoc as well. So you know, a lot of medical device companies just run their own internal studies. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. decided to go external work with the, the national governing body for clinical trials in the UK, which is called the NIHR. We're running all of our clinical trials with um, a network of GP surgeries, which is sort of like the local physicians here. So we've completely done it out of house for exactly that reason. You know, we want to be able to hit the highest standard and have the highest level of credibility that we possibly can do. That's right. Um, purely because you want to be able to firstly be proud of what you're doing and, and be able to talk about it in a completely transparent way. Um, and also have people understand that you've, your partners, particularly that you've gone that extra mile, I think makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing, you know, uh, being an entrepreneur is very difficult. It, it has, <laughs> yeah. you know, I always say it's doing two jobs at once. It's doing the, the job and then it's doing a second job of, of raising money and making sure that the business is capitalized, yeah. um, you know, uh, continuing to prove that you're a company that can do it. Um, it's an emotional up and down. And so I always tell entrepreneurs that the most important thing is self-management, right? That means that 
you are a resource. You have to take care of yourself. You have to make sure that you're uh, living your life in a way that allows you to bring your, your, your best self forward. And that's also important for how you're perceiving things, right? If you're Mm -hmm. not taking care of yourself, the world can look very, very negative. Um, Yeah. And how do you, you know, how do you do that self-management? You know, how, or how, you know, I'm sure that it's gone through various iterations and things like that, but like what's important for you in terms of that self-management, which I completely agree with, by the way, you know, sometimes you know i go through periods where i can't do it for whatever reason but then right. you, at some point you have to kind of like you know it's all well and good saying you're going to do it but then sometimes like you say you're fundraising and you know you're camping with the family and like trying to do investor calls in the middle of a forest or whatever it is you know <laughs> which, which is what happened um so but yeah but like what you know in an ideal world what's your go-to for self-management well, for me, um, you know, I'm a former competitive athlete, and so um, it's really important for me to, you know, take care of my body, and yeah. that's the foundation of everything. And then um, sleep, yeah, um, and uh, also uh, a social time away from people that are in the work community. So right. family, um, getting different pers- get a different perspective on thing things, yeah. right? So yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's so easy just to get to continually talk about and think about what you're doing. Yeah. And particularly as a founder or as an entrepreneur, it's, it's, there's almost like a guilt if you're not thinking about it, you know, like that every waking hour should be dedicated to And actually it becomes a bit of a, um, you know, it, it ends up being counterproductive, you know, cause, cause ultimately having that time away, you sort of need that perspective. You're in that role because people believe in you. They believe in your vision. They believe in your ability to execute. And so having that faith in yourself to step away, and get That's some right. time apart to be able to sort of think is really yes. valuable. But I, I find that the hardest thing to do, you know, because it's it's sort of stepping away from everything. And there's always lots of stuff to do, you know, like startups, there's always more nails than there are hammers, at least to begin with. <laughs> but I think you you nailed it. It's it's perspective. Right. You need perspective. Otherwise, you're staring at the problem over and over again and it looks the same. But if you can step out and really remove yourself and have conversations with other types of people who are not in the entrepreneurial space. It gives you perspective. Yeah. And I, I, I completely agree with that as well, because, you know, everyone's living a different life, you know, and everyone's doing their own thing. And it, and it becomes, it, it's only when you start to speak to other people that are doing different things that you realize, well, actually, maybe I'll think slightly differently about this. It sort of forces you to think slightly differently. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so go on. I was just going to say the other thing that's really important to us as a company is that we don't do business with bad people. Okay. And, and so, you know, often somebody will have a check that would make your life easier, but something just doesn't feel right about there's some kind of misalignment with ethos or Mm. mission. And so we've, we are very careful about who we engage with to keep a a really positive uh, set of values in our company. No, and I think that's right. And I also wonder whether, you know, and this is one of the reasons why we did what we did and well, why we do a lot of the things that we do that's a harder path, but mm-hmm. it's because we want to be able to communicate to people that work in our organization that we have taken that harder path because it's the right path. That's right. You know, And so I, I want everyone to understand that we've done that. Yes, it is harder, but we've done that for these reasons. And that actually marks us out as the exception and not the rule. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. So staying on mission, very important. Yeah. Stay on the mission. Um, and I completely agree about people 
who come in and, and it gets harder as you scale, you know, as you bring more people into the organization, you know, like people who are further away from the original kind of core crew, so to speak, mm-hmm. trying to find a way. I mean, how have you done that to try and find a way to disseminate the mission, you know, in a, in a pure and in, in, in as pure as form as possible. So everyone stays on that same one as you, as you scale. We have done a very good job of building a robust onboarding process. Okay. And so, um, you know, we utilize a wiki where we've stored a lot of videos and presentations that have been given. Um, we also make sure that that process is reinforced by hiring managers that are close to the mission mm-hmm. because you can read things and you can watch it, but you really need to feel the emotion coming from, you know, founding teams. Um, yeah. It helps also to have uh, anecdotes, you know, uh, companies have, a history and a legacy that needs to be brought forward constantly about how you survive something. You know, yep. there's organizational mythology that needs to yes. be shared. Yeah, there's always, yeah, exactly. There's the road stories, you know, there's, there's, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. That's great. I, th- yeah, I completely agree that trying to surface that and keep those alive, the oral history, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Makes the oral history. People don't really talk about that so much, you know, in sort of company culture, but it makes a massive difference. Oh, so I think does. about the, the startups that I've worked out, that type of thing, particularly at the beginning, you know, is, is critical. Yeah. Some people call it indoctrination or drinking the Kool-Aid, but I prefer to call it an oral history because you've got to know what you're working on, you know, where it came from. Yeah, I agree. Well, Liz, we've come to the end of the show, but thank you so much. What's the, if people are interested to find out more about Ember, what's the, what's the website? Yes, it's very simple. It's emberlabs.com with no E at the end, right? So E-M-B-R labs.com. And uh, Steve, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Really great. Liz from Ember Labs, thank you so much for coming on. Brilliant story, fantastic product. Real pleasure to have you on. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week. Thank you. You're just like my favorite song going round around my head. Like my favorite song going round around my head. Five days on the freeway, riding shotgun with you. Two hearts in the fast lane, we had big dreams in blue yeah. Playing sweet child of mine, and I still feel that line Where are you now? Where are you now? Hey, it's been too long, too long ago, my love Where did we go wrong? Too late to turn around Where are you now? Where are you now? You're just like my favorite song going round, round my head. Like my favorite song going round, round my head. You're just like my favorite song going round, round my head. Like my favorite song going round, round my head.